Welcome back to Sleep Before Performance Radio, Season 3, Episode 1. Cracking episode today with uh, Dr. John Sullivan. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Dr. John Sullivan joins us today from the east coast of the USA in Rhode Island. Uh, John Sullivan's body of work is around The Brain Always Wins, and you can find his book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. So in this conversation today, myself and John discuss many different um, aspects of the brain and how it relates to sleep. Um, obviously, we all have brains, so this one's always going to be interesting to all our listeners. We speak about protecting the brain and combating contact sports. We talk about CTE, uh, traumatic brain injury or TBI, how that affects sleep. And we get into a number of different aspects around the brain and brain health. This is a great episode to kick off season three. Uh, as always, you can follow me on at sleep for perform on Twitter, sleep for performance on Facebook or email me, Ian Dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au. OK, we'll get into this episode as quickly as possible. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Dr. John Sullivan. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So, John, you sound a little bit different to me. Whereabouts are you today? Today, I'm in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. I split time between Newport, Rhode Island on the East Coast of the United States and uh, split time between there and Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. So you're in the United States of America. Yes, I am. We just want to clarify that. Okay. All right. So, so John, um, we spent the last nearly 20 minutes talking before the podcast. So now it's all gone dead. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> Not at all. Fantastic conversations. And I think we're going to roll right into this with some more. All right. So, John, for our listeners out there, um, can you give us a, just a quick background on, you know, sort of your work and what you do? Sure, happy to. Um, I've spent uh, about 20 plus years working in health and human performance. Uh, I primarily find myself working with elite athletes uh, within the National Collegiate Athletic Association, as well as in North American uh, pro sports. Uh, one in particular, I spent 17 years uh, as uh, the clinical sports psychologist, as well as sports scientist for the New England Patriots, the National Football League. Uh, I also, besides sport, I find myself working in tactical uh, environments, working with uh, police, uh, particularly SWAT, and uh, or special advanced tactics groups in law enforcement in the U.S. Uh, I've also spent time working with uh, the United States elite military and the Department of Navy. So I, I find myself working in kind of those environments. Uh, the other thing that I do find... Uh, I spend quite a bit of time on is is working uh, with the areas of concussion assessment and rehabilitation, uh, which also connects into you know sleep, uh, which is critically important uh, for that recovery process. But that's kind of how I spend my days working as uh, an educator, a practitioner, and a researcher. Very interesting. So, John, you're across not only sport, but obviously, you know, some of these um, high risk um, human performance dependent areas such as police, SWAT and military, as you said. What what attracted you to working with these high performing type groups? What is it that brings you to those? Well, I think it, I think for most people, when they look at their attraction to it, there's some 
entryway into it, exposure to it in early earlier life and experience of and, and certainly th- that that kind of plays into that narrative for me so i was a um a national collegiate athletic association division one athlete which is considered elite sport by research standpoints uh, if you kind of look at the resources that are funded into u.s collegiate sports it's at a very very high level um, and so uh, I was an endurance athlete. I was a track and field and cross country athlete, as well as a, a cyclist, and competed afterwards um, Olympic trials and and as a, a professional cyclist. So uh, I was always, but grew up playing. I'm half Irish, half Italian, so I grew up with European sports, a ball up my foot, uh, running, <laughs> cycling, these sort of things, a part of my vernacular. Uh, so that exposure, there was always this idea of kind of pushing limits. And certainly in endurance sports, although it can be team, it's very individual. So I was always looking for, it's got to be more than just VO2 max. It's got to be more than just you know efficiency within the physiological systems. So it, it kind of drew me into understanding the central nervous system in that. But then uh, I come from a military family. I come from a family of service, a uh, family of firefighters, family of police officers, a family of Coast Guard and uh, United States Coast Guard, United States Navy service. And so um, having seen those environments and been around those environments, it certainly understood the sacrifice. And one of the things that... Uh, really alerted me is the greatest sacrifice of that service. Often, if you're seeing war or trauma in theater, is is brain health issues. So, it kind of maturity of experience, seeing, doing, and then alerting me to wow, there's some really scientific questions here that are quite big and 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 exciting and quite fruitful if we can figure them out to help uh, uh, man and womankind. So that that's kind of the, my journey a bit with that. Very interesting, yeah. So more of like a kind of a personal, you know, from true sports and then your family background getting sort of, you know, looking for a, a, the next edge or like you say, something more than VO2 max and body fat and just doing the reps is what are these other things mm. we can look at as opposed to just strength and condition. It's an interesting one, John, because, you know, this is this is something I see when, um, you know, when, we, when you look at athletes or athletic groups or teams or if you listen to podcasts it's so dominant with just strength and conditioning about putting the reps in lifting heavy running hard but there's very little paid to the extra things around you know and it's coming in now around mindfulness and you know focus and meditation and like you're saying here on the central nervous system and other thing that's grown as well as the recovery aspect as well but it's so heavily dominated by strength and condition and just putting the reps in with the old adages of, you know, um, rise and grind and someone's always working harder. You know, I I like to rub those out when I see them on a board in the gym and write, nah, someone's working smarter, (laughs) you know, but um, it's really, it's really (laughs) interesting that um, you looked at it from these extra, extra points. Um, Was there a reason why you looked for these extra edges or these different areas where you what what what's what sort of stimulated in you that you think that made you look at these other areas as opposed to just a SNC type things? You know, I think I think what you presented there is really really a powerful statement though, and I think um, we generally because I spend time in Australia, so I'm I'm a visiting professor at Queensland University of Technology and biomedical sciences, psychology, and neuroscience, and so I work in transdisciplinary teams. And in Australia has been kind of the leading edge on this to, to look at your, you know, the heart of your question post Montreal. They were like, hey, we can't compete 
with U.S. and Russia just on mere population standards. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll, I'll kind of look at the U.S. from from this standpoint and answer your question is, is we don't develop a lot of talent. We don't have to. We do. There's enclaves of that. But we have the largest population and we have the greatest diversity. So if we break athletes by more is better to, to, to frame it a different way than you framed it, you know, especially in that strength and conditioning format or just kind of in training more reps, more reps, more reps, um, that, you know, we're okay if we break athletes. If Australia does that, if Canada does that, if UK does that, and they've modeled the Australian model of, of athlete development or say Iceland, which is so small. Um, and they compete at the World Cup level in, in, in men's and women's soccer or men's and women's football. They, they compete by protecting talent and developing talent where um, we don't. And so what, I, what I've always strived to do is we talk about human performance and we talk about wanting to look for advantages. But yet I don't think we really take an honest, earnest, scientific approach to it. Because the ethos of sport is more is better, it's mental toughness, it's grit, which are all false sciences. Because what you're talking about is actually, um, you can break an Navy SEAL. You can overtrain anybody. And Darwin was right. We need stimulation and then we need recovery for adaption and growth, which is the description of evolution. But yet what we do is we expect that linear doing more without more rest will lead to some adaptation. And that's just not true. It's just not true. And so I've always been looking at how do we improve, protect talent and develop talent down to the individual. And I think we say, and UK Athletics uh, drove this terminology, of looking for marginal gains, I think we that's a falsehood. We look for marginal gains because we ignore the brain. We ignore the central nervous system because we're looking at performance below the neck. So I've always been a systems thinker of sport is not linear. It's not A plus B equals C. We want to reduce sport down to its simplest of meanings. And we want to desperately believe they come down to like single things. Uh, sport is non, non-linear dynamics. Meaning you, you can't command and control anything. You can only manage and influence f- flow states or thermodynamics. The, f- the first rule, uh, uh, rule of thermodynamics and physics is the first law of sport. Management of energy in and out, leading to stabilization. But we've forgotten our physics and math. We want to think A plus B is the answer. So I've always think about it in systems. And where can I gain advantage in protecting talent and developing talent? Very interesting. You remind me of a of a quote that I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say, I think, on the Joe Rogan experience. <clears throat> Excuse me, when it comes to diet, he was like, it's as simple as managing energy in and energy out. And sometimes, you know, people get so crazy on diets, you know, and what's going on. To, to, you know, thinking about that kind of <clears throat> top level thing that you said about, <laughs> you know, the system, mm. it's in and it's out. I'm just looking at some of those fundamental aspects. So mm. very interesting. John, um, kind of just drilling down a bit more into some of these areas that you've spoken about in your area of expertise around the brain and the central nervous system. For somebody who may not be a neuroscientist or, you know, who doesn't really know the anatomy and physiology that well, 
Could you kind of describe the brand like, as if we were looking at a map of the world? What's the big kind of chunks and, and kind of what's their purposes? Sure. And, and actually, it's a great question because I think a lot of we're all at a disadvantage. Uh, when Chris Parker and I, a professor at Nottingham Trent University, wrote the, the book, The Brain Always Wins, it was an effort to bring these brain sciences to everybody. Um, he feels very strongly, and as I do, and we were talking before we started the podcast, and, and you had made note of this, and I think in a very, uh, really impactful way, that as scientists, we, we do a life's work. And if our life's work is to enhance or protect the health of, of people, yet we never speak to the people, we only speak to our colleagues, whether we're writing journal articles or, or we're writing more scientifically based then what have we focused on in our life's work? We have missed the point that we have to tell a story that allows everyone to have access to this information. So that's why we wrote The Brain Always Wins. And it's kind of address your question and dispel, dispel kind of some myths. For the last 19th, 20th, and 21st century, we've been focused on something that's, that's although it has value, we've overestimated. A lot of people, when they think about the brain, they think about the mind. Well, actually, the brain and the mind are two very different things. We don't actually know. The mind refers to human consciousness. We actually don't know what that is. The best we know, and this gets to some of the heart of the function of the brain, is that it grew out of the evolutionary brain, the outside, which we kind of think about the wrinkly parts. When we think of the brain, we think of that area called the neocortex. It has to do with a lot of the advanced functioning and the communicates across um, that surface area. And we think of the mind as that's the brain. Well, no, human consciousness came from the evolution of the brain growing. And it serves as another defense mechanism because the brain's only wired for survival. It's not even wired for happiness all that well. And I can go into that. Now we've all experienced happiness, but it's really designed for survival. And our consciousness is just another survival technique. And so yet we focus so much on consciousness when actually all the work is being done in the lower center of the brain which is where the spinal cord goes right into kind of what we call the brainstem, which contains the medulla and the pons. And, I, and that area of the brain has to do with, you know, some of the involuntary blink, blinking and breathing, but it has much more to do with emotion. Emotions run the show in sport and life. And to the heart of all human performance and human health is our emotions, or we would call neuroception, our ability to understand our emotions via signals of consciousness and then also signaling in the other 11 systems, whether it be neuromuscular, whether it be digestion, whether it be breath rate, that emotions are giving us signals about our well-being, our capacity at any given moment, as well as understanding patterns that are happening. Because there's so much information happening in the background. Most people think all behavior is conscious. Mm. It's not. Most behavior is unconscious. We are not born with software. Yeah. Software is loaded over time. We're processing pattern recognition ahead of us. And we're triggered by our environment and we're triggered internally. And then our brain is making sense of that by emotion, then thinking. But we, if we think about the brain, the bottom centers do all the work. And you can see that across all mammals. You can see across all primates. And we are just primates. We just wanted to feel special, so we called ourselves homo sapiens. That should have never happened. We're just all primates. 
Um, you know, that, that happens in groups. We <laughs> want to feel special, but we're primates. And, and this happens across all animals. Yeah. So the brain, the lower centers really run it. The upper centers just give us more information of how, how to work in certain situations. Very interesting. It's interesting to speak about the mind versus the brain, because I think you're right. I think people talk about these interchangeably and don't differentiate between them. And if you read any of Sam Harris's mm -hmm. work, who's got a background in neuroscience and philosophy, he talks about this as well, about, you know, the mind versus the brain. And then if you look at serotonin, which obviously helps us feel better, is that's released in the yes. gut. So, you know, and if you look at some of the ancient sort of philosophy as well, is the mind actually in in the in the gut is it in the arm is it is it completely outside the body is it something else if you look into like hinduism to talk about indra's net where everything is connected if you look at um rupert sheldrake he talks about this morphic resonance theory so is the mind even something that's attached to us or is it something that's abstract from our body now i know I'm, i know i'm going into some crazy realms there but it's really interesting when we talk about the physical brain itself and what it's doing, like you've been saying, and then the mind is completely different. And it's so interesting that people just melt this all together. And, and I think they melt it all together into the thing that we're speaking to is that we all start with such um, uh, very, we start at a very, a very uh, strong point of deficit, unfortunately. Think about it. Most of us know more about our heart health and colon health yeah. than we do about our brain health. So I, I, I really feel strongly if I hadn't studied it, I wouldn't know anything about it. And, and so I don't fault anyone. Uh, but the sad part is, is the point we were talking about before we got on the podcast, that this information's out there, but yes, the general public has not been told a, a well-packaged truth narrative about this information to own it. For instance, it's okay that you went deep into history. I love that you went there. I mean, you were naming some of the modern Western philosophical approaches, you know, Aristotle, Plato, uh, Aquinas, and so on and so forth. However, what most people don't know is the ancient Egyptians actually were far ahead in their sense of neuroscience, in the sense that the mind is a secondary process. The primary process is the brain. And it is an outgrowth of, and this is recording in ancient Egyptian scriptures and writings, scientific writings. And in fact, they knew in taking care of warriors who were injured in battle, the types of battle injuries that we still see today, traumatic, not mild traumatic, not concussive, but traumatic brain injuries, protrusions into the skull, into the ocular areas. And they had recordings of what type of injuries people could survive from. They had an understanding that you could do surgical procedures on the brain and the person wouldn't feel pain. They were way ahead. But, but it is only through this philosophical Western idea that we kind of look at that debate of where's the mind. To me, um, I'm excited um, that areas of consciousness are being uh, evaluated. I think it's a very valuable point of science. The problem is it has drowned out the real value, which is understanding the lower centers. And the mind, to me, is if you really get into uh, Gerard Edelman's research, who really was, was a, a, you know, an evolution neuroscientist. Um, he, he really talked about this piece of, it seems, and, and more and more his theories have just come true into the neuroscience, that this 
came due to the evolution of the brain, that we had ability to have internal dialogue. And that internal dialogue also helped regulate social interactions, which regulated and helped evolve the brain. And so having this mind is really more about survival and connection than it is about anything else. John, you were speaking there about uh, traumatic brain injury or TBI or, or CTE. Um, so, C, sorry, CTE, John. What what exactly is CTE? What's the so TBE is traumatic? Well, to what we yeah yeah uh, it, it, great question, great question. It's 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 made more. Um, I think it become more to our consciousness uh, through sport. However, uh, you know, as you know, from your background and certainly my family background, but also my work area, it's much more common in the military. So what we're seeing is CTE seems to be some sort of inflammation that comes from repeated hits with the inability to recover. Uh, It connects to tau proteins. So tau proteins are naturally occurring in the brain. Once you stimulate someone, there is a biochemical change that has to lead towards a recovery process where we have adaption of neural synapses or neuromuscular patterns or movement patterns or thought patterns. And so tau proteins uh, show up. Now, what we seem to see in repeated head injuries is that if there's not enough recovery time, then there isn't a cyclic process of cleaning the brain because the brain cleans itself at night in deep sleep. And that was discovered in 2013 at the University of Rochester. We didn't know the brain had its own cleaning system. We knew that the body did, but we didn't know the brain did. That with these repeated hits, repeated traumas to the central nervous system, and its inability to clean itself and repair itself, that things slow down. Things start to disintegrate or degenerate in their ability to run smoothly. So CTE is this pattern that can only be diagnosed post-mortem at death. But what we can come to understand is there seems to be this process with any intense trauma to the central nervous system, tau proteins grow, and then this inflammation grows. Mm. Uh, We also see it with people who drink heavily, who have substance abuse issues, who have experienced repeated trauma. And what we can theorize in high-performance sport, this happens when athletes are overtrained, not just when they've been uh, received a shockwave that we could say would be a concussion or a traumatic brain injury. And so really we're looking at inflammation. So these tau proteins increase and then cause inflammation, even in overtraining, regardless of the mechanism of contact to the body. Theoretically, yes. Um, I mean, all I, I always talk about, and you've heard this too, and all your listeners have, they've heard the terminology of stress. Whether we talk about stress in training for sport, stress in everyday life or in work, life balance or at work, we hear this terminology. And, and certainly I, I've had many discussions with exercise physiology. And we have to come to an understanding that's a subjective definition. But by objective standards and looking at, um, uh, uh, you know, CAT scan, brain imaging, CAT scan, PET scans, functional MRI, the brain doesn't interpret things as stress. It interprets things as levels of trauma. We're designed to experience certain levels of low levels of challenge or trauma that we can recover from. 
But when we can't recover from it, it leaves a, a central nervous system or the rest of the body not to function as, as effectively. And so sport is trauma. Is it a big T or a little T? Depends upon how you've overdosed the individual. Because all sports, not that's the challenge of a coach. Yeah. I'm training a group, but you're not. You're training a group of really specialized individuals that you have to dose. And we don't think about that. Even education's a dose. We think of education as like one size fits all. Yeah, yeah. It's like Henry Ford in an assembly line. That's not how learning works. So when we think about, you know, um, trauma, you really have to think about it from a, a, a much broader, broader definition. And stress is just subjective. It's a subjective terminology. So, John, what's the difference then between a, tr- a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, and a CTE? Or is there any difference? So, yeah, yeah. Well, CTE is, again, is, is more of a disorder that you would uh, diagnose post-mortem. So someone's yeah. passed away and they've requested an autopsy. So if we, it's a great question. Though. Let's look at the continuum of kind of concussion. So every one of us gets micro traumas. If we think of a continuum, that's on the left. We'll say that's on the left. So if you and I go run around right now, our brain floats. Yeah. So our brain floats and it hits the inside of the skull. So we don't know if someone runs 120 miles in a week or 60 miles in a week. Does that equate to a concussion without proper recovery? We don't know. It's a millimeter. It floats in a millimeter from the inside of the skull. So it's constantly hitting. Now, the middle of that continuum is a concussion. That somewhere along the line, the brain's ability and the central nervous system's ability to compensate for that trauma, it, it, it goes away. They're unable to do it. So now they have all these symptoms coming from the central nervous system telling them they need to correct course to become more resilient. And a traumatic brain injury is all the way on the right side. And that's where we're actually having skull fractures. We're having protrusion into the gray matter of the brain. And those are much more severe. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's often a, miss, uh, a, you know, a myth about concussion is that you have to get struck in the head. It's actually a shock wave. So yes, sometimes it happens by getting hit in the head. But if we look at military, we look at car crashes, there may be no contact with, with the skull at all. It's a shock wave. And it's the violent movement, explosions. That's why military personnel go through um, that continuum of needing brain health so much more because they're surrounded by, um, uh, you know, concussive shock waves or subconcussive blows. Just being on a weapon system, firing it, a 50 cal uh, rifle or machine gun, and you're on that for an hour. All right, that, that's much, much more difficult than a rugby game or an uh, Australian rules football game or an American football game. Much more difficult in their collisions. Yeah, you're bringing back some bad memories for me there, John. Um, <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> that's okay. Well, actually, here, here's the question, and we'll, we'll jump onto this military side because this is interesting. I know before, maybe 20-odd years ago, when I was going on a deployment with the military, we did what was called battle inoculation. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Battle inoculations where they bring you to an area and they put you in a field, they put you in a trench, they put you in different situations, and particularly if you haven't been to a combat zone and they fire live ammunition around you. Now, they fire 60 mortars, 81 millimeter mortars, which is, mm-hmm. uh, for anybody listening, don't, doesn't know what that is. If you see on those movies when you're watching them, like Platoon and so on, it looks like a pipe that's pointing into the air and they drop this little thing into it and it flies off. Well, that's a mortar. 
And then, as John was saying, the 0.5 or the 12.7 HMG heavy machine gun is something you'd see on the top of a big armoured car in a, in a war movie where they're just like rattling it away left to right. Looks like you're a Rambo on it. Um, so so those things, John, like when people go into, into battle inoculation, I don't know if they still do that in military, but one is, is there any point in doing that? Does that make people used to it? I suppose from a psychological perspective, it may do because then they know what it's like to be kind of pinned down by heavy fire. But if we're listening to what you're saying, this is actually all bad. This is just increasing, you know, the potential for these issues. Mm. I mean, I think I think you've highlighted the two points that are really important. Like simulation in any environment is critical. It's how do you dose it? Do you do you dose it slowly so the central nervous system can and then all the eleven other systems that the brain runs can adapt. That is critical to to what you said. The psychological piece of okay, there. This is the process. This is how we engage, but doing it in a slower manner than probably has been done, and certainly is being done at the elite levels now. And then there's a piece that you're saying: can we ever truly avoid when we get to the highest points of simulation that there is some impact? on health. No, you can't completely avoid them. But what you can think about is this. When's the next time I'm going to have them train? Am I readying them for their peak in that simulation where there's a lot of trauma? And am I allowing proper rest measured to the individual on the other end? Because to your point, they are going to experience it. Can we gain some value by going through simulation and protect talent? Yes, you can to the best of, of one's ability. Um, and, the, and that requires subjective measurement, communicating with your, your military operatives, um, allowing them to have a voice and be able to acknowledge when things are different for them or they're experiencing things, and then measuring objective information prior to going into simulation, during simulation, and coming out so you can properly help them recover. Uh, so they have the knowledge to know what I'm doing when I'm off base, but when I'm on base as well. So there is a value to it. It's, it's all in the process. Um, if we do baptism by fire with any type of trauma, some will adapt and some you will break. But we shouldn't be doing that in 2018. Unfortunately, we do that in sport, in academia, in industry, and in the military. But there are methods to be able to apply what you're saying and find the best point of intervention. Uh, absolutely. We, we, we have enough ability to access data at this point in time, uh, for sure, um, yeah, for, for training and then mission, on mission, being able to pull people and letting them recover before they go back on mission. We have that information. Whether we follow it, that's a different story, but we, we can do a pretty good job these days. Yeah. So, John, given um, that overview of um, <clears throat> CT and TBI, how, what do we know currently in the, in the published science arena? Um, around how this affects sleep. Yeah, concussion, when we look at concussion, and, and well, first of all, we gotta, if we roll back and we look at concussion and sleep, we gotta start with the, the foundation and, and really kind of dissolve away some myths. Like in our culture generally, or generally in westernized culture, uh, and, and I get to laugh about the US because we seem to be number one in the things that really negatively impact health. So we're the worst sleepers in the world. Uh, what comes next are a number of other westernized cultures. But we grew up with these myths that sleep is a luxury. It's not. It's a necessity for optimal functioning for all mammals and all primates, 
all human beings. And so we have to come at it from that standpoint and, and really kind of make sure we're doing our due diligence. Because when we bring it back to concussion, sleep and getting someone to sleep post-injury is one of the most important factors in prognosis to full recovery, as well as what was their sleep status, quality, and quantity prior to the injury. Because, you know, we also have to dismell this one myth, and the reason why some people will get a concussion and they're entering in the pathway with poor sleep. One, the U.S. is some of the worst in westernized cultures, but then we believe it's a luxury. And then we also believe that the brain can be trained to need less sleep. And that's false too. So we're sometimes getting individuals, whether we're talking about athletes, we're talking about people that unfortunately have been automobile accidents, industry accidents in the military that grow up with these myths who have poor prognosis post because their sleep was already disrupted before they even had a central nervous system injury. In fact, their central nervous system was already injured. It already had inflammation that it could not clear because deep sleep is so important. So I think when we look at concussion, it's your number one prognosis to recovery if you got, can get them to sleep quickly and if they had good sleep prior. That's how uh, a, a health uh, foundation sleep is, but also a performance metric. They both go hand in hand. Um, it's, it's, it is your number one performance enhancer and health enhancer, hands down. So John, when people have these... Um incidents with concussion, traumatic brain injury, uh, and so on, or they've been experiencing these shockwaves, like we say, in the military environment, or maybe they're a rugby player or a contact sport athlete. What's some of the things they may be able to do after such an injury that would help them get to sleep? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and these are some of the things we're going to touch on are some of the things that, that people generally do to help themselves with sleep overall. Um, when we look at how uh, concussion and sleep, and the reason why they're so paired connected together is that they actually the low-grade inflammation that comes from sleep, and then you get a concussion, and there's more inflammation, also is a pathway to anxiety and depression symptoms you see in concussion, which were probably lying there in a low level anyway prior to a concussion. So what are some of the things that are really we try to remove from someone who's, you know, uh, just got a concussion when to get them to sleep as quickly as possible? Some of the biggest culprits are today's technology. Um, I, I see technology as a tool. I use a lot of it in my work, but we've not adopted well, nor have the designers worked well with understanding the central nervous system from a health standpoint. Um, and in fact, they've used the technology to manipulate much more addiction to devices. But one of the things most people have heard about is the blue light. So most of our devices emit a blue light that is equivalent to 12 noon. So if you can imagine 12 noon, chronobiology, light passing through our eye, turning on certainly uh, neurobiological, neurochemical, uh, cellular responses throughout the brain and the rest of the body, that you get alert. Well, if you're doing that an hour before bed and you're already going through a trauma and trying to you know, move inflammation and heal, that's going to be a huge disruption. So it's removal of blue light um, for, for a significant amount of time. But most people should be reducing blue light 30 minutes to an hour before bed. Now, the reason why I give a range because people have different sensitivities yeah. to light. And so there's a situation right there that needs to be removed. Um, the other piece is 
is actually, again, light in the room, other types of light. Now, most light bulbs are, are pretty efficient in their LEDs. And guess what? Blue light. So even the lights in our house have to be thoughtful and used in, in the bedroom and in the environment uh, pre or, or kind of a, a pre-sleep routine. So we got to look at our home environment. We have to look at temperature. We're really regulatory and regulation of temperature goes off a little bit with concussion, but keeping it a little bit on the cooler side so the body has a, a relaxation response. And a way to manipulate that a little bit is, and people can do this even if they don't have a concussion, is taking a warm shower just before bed. Everyone's been in a warm car and started to fall asleep. If you take a warm shower for five to 10 minutes, you effectively are changing your core temperature a little bit. If you then enter into a cooler environment, it, it actually will kind of raise histamines in our system and we'll start to get a little bit more drowsy. So light, temperature, kind of environment to get comfortable, and, and then the other piece that is really important that I often teach um, concussion individuals but who are recovering through rehabilitation, but also my athletes, is how to regulate heart rate respiration through the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve connects the brain, the heart, and the stomach. And we're the only primates that have this ability. If you control your respiration rate and drop it, the brain starts to get out of a survival mode. A lot of people will talk about post bad sleep or concussion, cognitive symptoms of a brain racing. Well, of course, it's supposed to. It's in survival mode. But unless you're teaching people how to slow the brain down, it remains in that hypervigilant state. So it's teaching them a little bit about breath, breath control, um, what we would call heart rate variability uh, training which is basically training breath to get your uh, breath rate down to about six breaths per minute. And most people breathe nine to uh, 24 breaths per minute. When you have concussion cases, they're breathing them in that upper range. So they're in a panic state because they need to be. They're in survival. The brain's wired for it. So teaching them just to control their breath rate prior to bed helps them really create an environment where you're creating a cascade effect where melatonin can create more drowsiness like it normally does. Then you can go, as I mentioned, melatonin, you can go into some uh, nutraceutical and pharmaceutical interventions that a primary care physician or, or, or um, a well-trained um, nutritionist can go into with use of magnesium, use of melatonin, those types of things. But from, a, from an environmental standpoint, cueing the central nervous system, those are some things everyone can do. But especially from a concussion standpoint, you want to get those reinitiated or restabilized or unfortunately some people don't have those habits so is starting those new habits yeah no it's great that's that's great john as you as you've uh been speaking there i've been taking notes and then i went why am i taking notes i can just listen to this again <laughs> maybe i need to refresh my own brain here that's 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 uh that's really interesting and, and you've kind of um it's really effective uh what you've done here, because if people didn't know better, they would think that I had set you up to do a great segue from our last season. So at the end of season three, episode 10, we had Rob Wilson on from the US talking about the art of breath. And he, he spoke exactly about, he spoke exactly about what you've been speaking about mm -hmm. there. And he discussed all of this and he's been working with people like Laird Hamilton and some other 
you know, famous people about breath work. And he's uh, studied a lot of yoga as well. Um, he does a lot of martial arts. Um, and he's been working with power, speed, endurance in the US. So that was the last episode. Mm-hmm. And you're the first episode of season four. So perfect uh, reverse engineering there, John, on my behalf. Um, and uh, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And, not, and uh, without any prompts. So that was perfect. Um, so it's, it's <laughs> good to be the bridge. Good to be, good to be the bridge. You know, it's nothing wrong with that. And, and it takes a team. So I, I, I feel good about doing that. Uh, and you're right. You did not prep me for that at all. And, 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 you know, what, you know, as you described what he spoke about, that this is a skill that we should be teaching our young children in school. We think about the number of people who, and most of us experience test anxiety. And, and really it has to do with these physiological neuroceptive responses that we actually can have management over. Because the reason why we, if we prepare for a test and we get anxious, the reason why we can't access that is because the lower centers of the brain, which I spoke about, about emotion, allow us to reconnect into our memory stores. So we can't when that anxiety is flourishing. But breath control allows us actually reduce, as I was talking about before, that trauma. And you mentioned the connection to martial arts. We are in 21st century science now um, showing what these ancient cultures around the world knew. And it's what, what my co-author in The Brain Always Wins talks about, Chris Parker, is this wisdom of the village. But with the 21st century science, we're now able to see the component parts and drill down. And so I, I love that you, 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 you made reference to that because it really is. It's a narrative in which we're continuing to validate in, in an iterative fashion, seeing the value of all this stuff. And it's, and it's small stuff that allows us to be resilient uh, and ready. Uh, think about its breath and, and, that, and, that, uh, and that ability to manage it. It's yeah. such an important part, whether it be for daily life or sport. But like, I've spoken about this on other podcasts before, and I've spoken about this with people individually. Like I'm 40 years of age, five foot 10, 170 pounds, 77 kilos. Not a very big or imposing guy. I've got gray, white hair. When I'm in the gym at jiu-jitsu, people look at me as an easy target, an easy win. Being a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, middle of the road, there's somebody I can kind of beat up, and it doesn't always go their way. Now, not that I'm a phenom by any stretch of imagination, but what's really interesting is when I grapple with somebody who's maybe 90 kilos or, you know, or around 200 pounds is the difference I find is not the strength. It's not the, it's not the intensity. It's actually the breathing. I find when people are on top of me trying to choke mm-hmm. me, strangle me, break my arm, if their respiration rate is really high and mine's low, I know it's only a matter of time before I'm going to beat them. And I, I actually think it's one of the biggest indicators, is particularly in the grappling arts of success, is your ability to control breath work. And I see it as well in swimming. When I first started swimming earlier this year, you only able to swim maybe a kilometer in the pool. I would get out of the swimming pool and I would be so out of breath that I'd be dizzy. I couldn't walk to the change rooms. Now I can swim up to three kilometers, um, nearly two miles, get out of the pool and be completely, you know, with it. And the same as well, we're running as well, doing long distance running years ago or over long periods of time. I could finish a race and not be completely, you know, dizzy and out of my brain. So it's that ability to control your breath in a moment and over time as well. I think it's such an important part that we overlook and how that affects everything else in our body, the physiological responses, how we approach it, our cognitive sort of processing ability when we, when we control our breath. So for me, when we control our breath, everything seems to improve. 
And you gave great examples and great, uh, you know, across the different different sports and different uh, situations. And it really kind of give you some more of the, you know, the science there that just validates your experience. So we think about the vagus nerve, as I mentioned earlier, the longest, the 10th cranius nerve, the longest uh, nerve in the body connecting down the center, center of body, so important, connecting the brain to, to the heart, to the stomach. And, and again, the, you know, the heart is considered the second brain and the gut is considered the third brain. I think those should be reversed considering the gut has more neurology than the brain does. But, but to my point, 80% of the vagus nerve fibers are sending information from the brain into the 11 other systems and back and forth. And the other 20% is to the motor pathways. So if you're sending a panicked signal through the vagus nerve to the brain, you are starting to uh, become inefficient in your energy systems and use of energy. You're becoming disaffected and and, and dysregulated by how you interpret information in patterns. Everything is about pattern recognition, see and do. And that can be seeing it and feeling it. And when you talk about grappling, it's feeling it. And so if you become ineffective interpreting that information you can't attend you don't have cognitive speed and you cannot simulate in your brain as well as make sense of the patterns externally it's just a matter of time before everything goes down because you're going into a point where the brain is dumping way too much energy and it cannot uh, keep up with the circumstances and so we see this we see this um, in a multitude environment. So I talked about earlier, when I'm looking at objective information, you sometimes can see through brainwave, heart rate, heart rate variability, mm. breath rate, that the person's getting inefficient. And to your point, there is going to be a point in which they fail. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you can. And when you talk about grappling, you can feel it. You absolutely can feel it from your opponent. Yeah. No, 100%. The science is there. And that's your point that we don't teach breath rate control. We're losing an opportunity to teach people about the brain and one of the tools that it's allowed us to really be at the top of the food chain. We're not the fastest or the strongest. Um, I've told the story before, but I was a, a living part-time in D.C. We have a national zoo there that's owned by the Smithsonian, a huge museum uh, uh, system in Washington, D.C. that's free to everyone. And the zoo, they do do research. They have zoologists, uh, primatologists, and so on and so forth. And I caught wind uh, through a colleague that they were doing some studies and they have primates there of, you know, lowland gorillas, orangutans, you know, chimpanzees, and bonobos, our closest cousins. And they were looking at a research study about humor in brain pathways among <laughs> our closest cousins. And obviously you're not going to put a stand-up comedian in front of them. So they had to get research assistants that were willing to tickle them. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought it was a pathway for training for elite military because I'm not tickling a low-end gorilla because if they don't like it, they have uh, you know 10 times the strength of a grown you know, human male. Uh, so they tickled them. And of course they were looking at EEG patterns, electrical patterns in the brain. But what they really uniquely discovered was not what they expected to. They discovered that none of them have breath rate control. That if you tickle 
a primate <laughs> long enough, they will pass out. And we've all experienced this where we've laughed so hard we nearly wet ourselves or passed out, but we catch ourselves. And that unique ability is evolutionary and has allowed us to manage in high-pressure situations. But we don't teach it, but we should be. Because they're stronger than us, and in some ways they're faster than us. (laughs) But they pass out if you tickle them. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it'll work like a... A shark punching it in the nose? No. <laughs> so, so maybe next time we get in a fight, we'll just tickle each other and then um, we'll hopefully our opponent. Maybe you might see this in the UFC, UFC some weekend. <laughs> so, 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 John, when you, when you, when you look at, um, you know, on the weekend when you sit back and you, you grab a beer and a packet of nuts and you're watching TV and you're watching sport, football, and you've worked with the Patriots and you've worked with military and you see like, mixed martial arts fights on TV and, you know, you see all these things happen. What, what do you think it is personally? Do you think it's, what's, what's your thoughts on these sports occurring with, with the knowledge that you have around, you know, TBI and CT and so on? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And you described it perfectly. I think like yourself and other sports scientists, when you watch sport, you're of two minds and you almost, almost have to force yourself to watch it in a, in a way of, okay, I'm just going to sit back and relax and watch for enjoyment. I'm going to be a fan today. I'm going to be a fanatic because you do watch and it's tough to turn that off and not notice a lot of the things that are much more scientific in the sense of asking questions uh, of ourselves, like why, you know, why does things work this way? Or why haven't we discovered this aspect in this, in this process or why are they doing things in this way when the science doesn't say or does say that the process should change? And so I find often, uh, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, is that we're still processing much of sport from the neck down. And we're checking a box on when we talk about whether we talk about concussion, we talk about the dark side of sport, injury. Uh, and I talk about broadly injury. There is reams of good research about every injury is a brain injury because we're wired for you know neural Darwinism. We're wired for survival. So if we're wired for survival, then we need to attend to the emotional aspects before someone's fully recovered. When we look at the training aspects, um, going to your point about military and simulation, we could see it in sport too. Are we truly dosing, timing and dosing? correctly simulation and training sequence to train the brain or we overtraining and overshooting um and 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 certainly the research would say yes because we we love to have simple answers and eyeball things as opposed to exact measurements we're in the elite military it's very interesting i always find when it's life and death you get a lot more specific (laughs) Where sport isn't, unless you're a Colombian soccer player, everyone goes home, you know, um, and, and, and in the piece that we need to be uh, not taking broad brushstrokes, but doing a deeper dive. And then I think the other piece of it is that I'm really saddened by um, where my field is going um, and where our culture is going a little bit that it's the death of uh, Tom Nichols, who is actually a native of Newport, Rhode Island, where I live, wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. And it talks about how if you have a high social media platform, now this isn't always the case because broad brushstroke here, nothing, no absolutes here. But if you have a high social media platform, 
And I act as if I'm an expert, thus I'm an expert, as opposed to expertise is, is you know, to simply put it is that you've, you've made every mistake there is to make in a limited bandwidth of a field, have been supervised by other experts, corrected on your course, and, 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 and thus have, have maintained a set of standards, sometimes ethical, sometimes legal, sometimes both. And so I see my field... Uh, sadly, that most of the people out there call themselves sports psychologists, then they aren't. They aren't trained in psychology. They aren't trained in neuroscience. So when I watch it, I see a lot of what we could be doing to protect talent and develop talent. And I hear a lot more of checking boxes and acting as if we are. Um, now, don't don't get me wrong. As you brought up concussion, I think Australia has done a better job than the slow-moving caboose of North American sports in really acknowledging concussions. Um, even the NHL, the National Hockey League in North America, still will not admit that playing hockey, one of the ice hockey, one of the hazards is concussion. And so Australia has done a better job of pretending, not pretending it's it's not existent in con- collision sports like AFL, football, or or rugby. Um, but we can do better. The science we haven't got it all figured out, but we can do better. And so when I watch sport, I think I watch it in two minds. I enjoy a lot of it. I love sport. But I see a lot of hypocrisy. Um, and then I, I kind of see in my career as my job is to go back to another point you were saying, be positive, tell the story so people can get it. Because the great part about it is if you protect talent and you develop talent, you save money and make money. Another conversation we had before we got on the podcast, that the monetary ROI, the business aspects do matter to get people to understand the health and performance aspects. Yeah. The, the reason I asked that question, John, is because I get conflicted myself. Like I'm a fan of MMA, combat sports and contact sports, such as rugby. And I sit there and I watch them. And as a fan, I love them. And I love the, the strategy of the game. And I love the competition. But then as the, the rational scientist may go, it's like when a guy gets hit in MMA, I'm like, whoa, what a strike. He did that great. I mean, he moved his feet this way. He did this and then he took him down or whatever happened. But then instantly I go, oh my God, his head is going to be like in bits tomorrow. How is he going to sleep? What's the inflammation? Is he going to recover? And then if you hear fighters um, being interviewed and over time, their speech starts learning, then I start getting like, oh God, like I get really conflicted sometimes like watching these sports as a scientist and doing work. and so. You know, I just hope that sometimes my the work that I do in the field can positively influence it and we can still have a, a balance between the competition and the safety of the fighters. But um yeah, it's it's something that I kind of Yeah, to to your point yeah, to your point, that conflict I think is there, but we're having a conversation about it, which I think is one of those things. And I think you can count on your work making an impact. Because it, you and I will work on the grassroots, right, directly with the athletes, and we get to work with the coaches and, and maybe in the administration level or, or and, and elsewhere. So I think it's meeting in the middle. I think some people get nervous when you and I as scientists will have these conversations thinking we want to get rid of sport. I, I don't think we have to have those conversations or they're conversations that are a generation from now. What we have the technology to do and the science to do, as we both know, is we can make it safer. You cannot get prevention, and a lot of prevention models aren't used in sport or industry or elsewhere or in medicine. Often they're not used in the United States. We, you know, Doctors don't get paid in the United States unless they're dealing with illness. But I think we can do prevention, and we can make iterative small changes to make it safe. We'll never get situations down to a zero. 
but I don't think we're, we're people have to worry about we're getting rid of sports. I said that on our, our radio show in um, in Brisbane. We, uh, we're talking about some of the rash of concussions that were happening in rugby and AFL football. And 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 I don't think you and I are saying, "Hey, let's get rid of these sports." But we do have the science to make them better. And in some of the some of the simplest ways are some of the things we've talked about. And I'm sure you've done this too. And in National Rugby League has talked about this a little bit. And I've even said it at high level meetings in the NFL. Think about the knock on effect, no pun intended, of playing a rugby match or an American football game on on any given day. And then not playing for two weeks, but rotating schedules. So there's always a game for fans to watch. Yes, it would extend your season, but where the ROI is that it would extend your revenue base. But more importantly, it extends the recovery of the athlete's ability to then be ready and neurologically resilient. So in some ways, that's a simple low-hanging fruit. Even for fighters, often they're fighting too much. A simple example, I'm sure you've seen it a lot, and this goes to that let's watch and question. I don't know about you, but I've worked in in in, in boxing and UFC, and I'm sure you've seen it on TV and I have, and I and and one of the places I'll often make readiness or neurological resiliency changes is not only in the training regimen, but the day of the fight, how often they're warming up and how long they're warming up for. Some of them are doing workouts before they get into the match. Think of the trauma. Right there is a point of intervention for resilience. And that's low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit. Oh, great, great points, John. Uh, yeah, you've certainly uh, given me a lot to think about. And um, conversations, it stimulates me into, uh, into lots of other, other studies and work I can do, which is kind of annoying as well, but, but also inspiring. Because <laughs> my... my, my <laughs> Oh, come on. The best yeah. things come out of concept. conversation, Ian. <laughs> you, you've spurred me on too. I love these conversations because exactly. it gets you thinking about all the other areas, things you don't know that yeah. will help you identify and refer and things you know that, oh, wow, I, I need to brush up on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what's kind of annoying is like, you know, people, people often, <laughs> often think like, you know, the people with PhDs or people being in an, an area for a long time, you've developed this mastery and you've got things absolutely nailed, you know, and I've said to people, you know, I actually feel more stupider now after doing a PhD than I did before I even started going to uni because now I know what I don't know and it absolutely drives me insane. <laughs> and my to-do list and my reading list is getting longer and longer and longer. And, I, and I'm like, oh my God, like how am I ever going to get through this? This is just getting so annoying. Sometimes I just want to go and live in, a, in the woods on my own because <laughs> my, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of annoying and, and cool at the same time, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But you described even the work you do and the work I do. The reason, the way we compensate for that, and I agree with you and I'm kind of there with you. I love the reading, love diving in. Um, it's hard to be ahead of the curve. And, and so our job is to, to stay on top the best we can. And that's our ethical duty. And then sometimes a legal duty of kind of, hey, what's your competence and stay on top of that. But, but the thing you, you described when you and I were talking before we got on here and I described is working. And this is another thing I think when I watch 
um, sport I wonder about and sometimes I know about because I know the story in the background, and I'm sure you do too, that we're not working yeah. enough in multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary teams. Nobody can have all the answers. And so working in transdisciplinary team where we work together to answer some of the most difficult questions in human health and performance, we get better results. It's some of the ways we put our coaches in fail-fail situations, at least in North America. We expect our coaches to, to be the biomechanist, the nutritionist, the excess physiologist you know the, the sports psychologist when generals don't do dishes as i like to say they have experts around them they give feedback back to them about you know what they can what they can do with their expertise and their expertise is in uh, you know uh, recruitment and tactics just like sport coaches they use the information for expertise to help with that tactics and so I think we both make up for that by doing doing a real smart thing. Bring the best to the people you work with by multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary teams. But the fun part is right, catching up, stay on the head of the curve. Yeah. 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 Sometimes sometimes I think we're more facilitators than anything else. <laughs> Coordinators. Oh, agreed. Oh, that's a great way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Collaborators and facilitators. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's 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 what I like to do. You know, so, um, John, absolutely great conversation. We could go on for hours and hours and hours. I think we're definitely going to have you back for a part two. Uh, the fans are going to respond to this one. Great. I've certainly learned heaps. If people want to know more about your work, John, they want to look at buying your books, they want to get in contact with you, they want to follow your work. What's the best way to, to follow Dr. John Sullivan? I think the best way to contact me is through uh, our uh, Chris Parker and myself, our, our uh, website related to the book, The Brain Always Wins, uh, thebrainalwayswins.com. Uh, we have a place in which uh, uh, people can send uh, messages to him and I, and they will get to us, and we, we make sure to take the time to answer all those. Um, the other place is, is certainly on uh, social media, uh, primarily through Instagram, at The Brain Always Wins, uh, and then certainly uh, Twitter, uh, uh, since it's a shorter handle, uh, Brain Always Wins. And then through LinkedIn, uh, I can be found there. So uh, I try to stay on top and uh, responding to everyone. Um, but those are pr the, the primary ways, and I'm happy to hear from people. And uh, the book, uh, John, The Brain Always Wins, is available on Amazon. Any other platforms where people can buy, the, buy your book? Uh, Amazon's the largest. You can get it from Barnes & Noble as well, which uh, I don't know if it's worldwide, but it's available yep. worldwide on Amazon, uh, where everything else is found as well. <laughs> great stuff uh thanks very much john um before we before we uh leave today um coming up in our next episode will be professor roger eckert eckert oh i'm so bad at butchering names sorry roger um <laughs> but roger is a professor in sleep no worries i'm the same <laughs> maybe i need to stop getting hit in the head here john uh roger is a, prof <laughs> is a professor in sleep history so we're actually talking to a historian in our next episode, which will be quite interesting. So make sure you tune in for that. That'll be uh, episode two of season four of Sleep for Performance Radio. Uh, my name is Ian Dunikin. You can contact me at Sleep for Perform on Twitter, or you can head to sleepforperformance.com.au for lots more information, or you can email me at iandunikin at sleepforperformance.com.au. Until next time, sleep well. Thanks, John. What an episode there with Dr. John P. Sullivan. Now, what many people did not hear in that podcast is what happened before and after. So myself and John spoke about a half an hour before that podcast, and it must have been an hour and a half after that podcast. So in total, we nearly had three hours together, um, you know, talking. 
the problem is with a guy like John is that he's just too stimulating. Like people like John uh, drive me crazy and fascinate me because I'm recording this outro of this episode three days after the episode and I still can't sleep properly. John has, has, has John has been thinking about 500 studies we could do in this area, how we can collaborate what we can do as scientists to, uh, you know, really kind of improve a multidisciplinary approach to um, our research. And so it was very, very stimulating this episode. John's a great guy, super nice. Um, he's also got some shared Irish history as well, which we spoke about off air. And we figured out we have loads of shared connections um, in the in the world of, of sport as well. So um, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, if you want to follow John, um, you can find him on Twitter at Brain Always Wins, uh, John P. Sullivan. You know, he's got heaps of good stuff up there on Twitter. He also has a website, the, the brainalwayswins.com. And the book he spoke about here is The Brain Always Wins, Improving Your Life Through Better Brain Management. So, yeah, head over there and uh, check out John's work and uh, Chris Parker, who is co-author for this book. Uh, just whack their names into Google there and see what comes up. Lots of other podcasts you can listen to him on. Um, you know, he's been on Dr. Bob's podcast, which I've been on as well. We've been on a lot of other podcasts. Um, so, yeah, look, plenty of stuff there from John. So if you're interested in this whole area of the brain, how it affects sleep, or even just generally how the brain and neuroscience can help you live a better life, check out some of John's work on the Internet there. Uh, great guy. Really loved having him on the podcast. Okay, we'll be back next week, as I said, with episode two of season three with the great professor Roger E. Kirk, who is a professor of history and has a keen interest in sleep at Virginia Tech in the good old US of A. Until then, sleep well.